Hello, you are listening to KDRTLP 95.7 FM. This is Corinne Motokaitis, host of How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet. I continue my search for answers to improve our lives from people who have spent their lives learning, growing, and understanding. On How She Really Does It, we bring guests on the show to really dive into issues to help inform, inspire, empower you to a better life. We love to hear our listeners' comments about our shows or questions for upcoming guests. You can email us by going to our website, www.howshereallydoesit.com, and send us an email. You can find us on Facebook or on Twitter.com slash Our past shows are also available on our website or directly from iTunes. Many of you have heard of the brain scientist who was able to personally study a stroke by going through the experience herself. Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor is a Harvard-trained neuroanatomist, and in 1996, at the age of 37, Dr. Taylor had a stroke. In her New York Times bestseller, My Stroke of Insight, Dr. Taylor allows us to experience her journey of having a stroke, her rehabilitation and recovery, and how she has empowered her life after her stroke. Dr. Taylor, hello and welcome. Hi, Corinne. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So, you know, most people, I think, are pretty familiar with your, with your journey about your stroke, and um, there's a ton of talks that are you can find on the Internet, the TED Talk, which was fabulous. You've been on Oprah. Um, you've been interviewed all over the place. And what I really wanted to dive into t- today was really your discussion about right hemisphere and left hemisphere. And can you explain the, the differences between the right and the left hemisphere? You know, when you're looking at it anatomically, at the two hemispheres, of course, they're, uh, they're symmetrical but reversed. And um, the right hemisphere is all about the experience of the present moment. It is bringing information in through all the, all the uh, sensory systems of your body. It, is your, uh, it communicates with you kinesthetically uh, through your guttural feeling or your intuition. It is, uh, of course, it controls the motor side and sensory on the opposite side of the body. Uh, But it's all about the right here, right now experience. It thinks in pictures. The left hemisphere thinks in language. So my ability to create a word, dog, dog, dog is a sound that then our left brain places a meaning on. And uh, it, it associates information to the past and projects information into the future. And as a result of that, it has a linearity a, or a sequencing organization to it. So it has a past, a present, a future experience. And it thinks then in words. So the two hemispheres function very differently but complementary to one another. So we essentially have twice the brain power instead of each hemisphere doing the exact same thing and duplicating the processes. They're doing it in slightly different ways. And do in our education system and the way we grow up in this country, where do we focus more of our training on, our left or our right hemisphere? Well, we're born into the world as, as pretty much two little right hemisphere experiences. And then as soon as we get start being put into school, and we, we, because school is about detailing. It's about, about details. It's about learning language. It's about spelling and reading and mathematics. These are all, all a very abstractual left brain kind of function. Uh, and then we, we move into bigger details, details of, of the, the planet called geography or, or details of the body called anatomy or physiology or, or details of whatever. So the, the, um, the school really promotes left hemisphere development and organization of information. 
And so knowing what you know now and your experiences, what do you think is the best way to do education? Should we try to incorporate more right hemisphere? Well, you know, I think the common conversation in our society, unfortunately, is do we need the arts? Do we need music? Do we need physical education? And the unfortunate thing is that it's it's our left brain saying we don't have as much value and don't place as much meaning and value on the skills that ultimately stimulate the right hemisphere. And on your TED Talk that I was watching earlier this week, preparing for this show, um, you had talked about part of the right, right hemisphere is the, is the kinesthetic. It's the we learn by doing. Right. And um, so how can we, with given the education system that we currently have, how can we help the, the children that are in education so that they can learn better? If well, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's about are we asking them to memorize details or are we asking them to actually think? through processes. And, you know, I mean, taking biology as an example or, or uh, chemistry, if, if, we, if we give a, a group of children or a bunch of kids information that is just detail, 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 do this, uh, follow this equation, come up with this, memorize all these details, that's one way to do it. The other way is to say, say, let's do this. Let's take this mixture and this mixture and this mixture and try to figure out based upon the properties that we understand to be true about each of these different elements, what's actually in there. And so we go through a lab process. I'm a real advocate for lab teaching because mm-hmm. labs are, are hands-on. And, and if, you, if you really want to cultivate ner- uh, learning, it's one thing to teach the left brain, give the left brain the detail information, give pictures and structure and kinesthetic relationships and experience to the right hemisphere, and then you understand the details. So I think it's, it's true learning. It's the combination of the two. That's very interesting. And um because one of the things that I've come upon realizing is that there's a ton of information, especially, I mean, you know, with the internet, there's a ton of content that's out there. And, but, and, and we may understand things intellectually, but if we don't put them into practice and implement them, I don't think we really absorb, this is my bias, so please tell me where I'm wrong. I don't think we really absorb and make that transition, that step, like um, stepping to the other side. Yeah, we, we don't incorporate it into our real learning so that we can use that information in meaningful ways. Interesting. And then for those, the some of the questions we had from listeners was, okay, I'm not in school anymore. How can I practice getting into my right brain more? Well, I think not being in school is probably a step in the right direction, uh, unfortunately. Um, well, I, I think it's a matter of, of, you know, the thing about the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere that I noticed for, for my own experience is they feel totally different when you're in them. The right hemisphere is much slower. It's much more contemplative. It's reflective. It's, um, it, it's aware of the present moment. It's not in a hurry, and it's not all about talking. It's about experiencing. So even doing, doing paying attention to the ordinary things in your normal life, paying attention to that, that cup of tea or the preparation of that cup of tea, don't just go through the actions and multitask and be on the phone at the same time or, or, or texting or whatever. 
pay attention to what you're actually doing and allow your mind to go there. And by paying attention to where your mind is at, then you're actually stimulating it with the present moment experience. So it's really simple for us to make the decision that as I'm going up the steps, I'm not just going to fly up the steps. I'm actually going to pay attention to the steps. What does the carpet feel like under my feet? Where are the spots around? What is, you know, just what is the texture of the banister? What does it feel like in my body as I push my weight up onto the ball of my foot? I mean, it's, it's a matter of, of bringing your mind to the simple thing as opposed to having it go a million miles away on some co cognitive idea that is in outer space as you're performing tasks. And, and by doing that, by going into our right brain and really paying attention to the present moment, is that helping us reconnect with ourself? Well, it, it helps us reconnect with our right hemisphere. And our right hemisphere is where our joy is. Joy is something that happens in the present moment. Prayer is something that happens in the present moment. The experience of being at one with all that is or connected to, to a divinity or whatever it is that, that however you define it for yourself, that's in the present moment. You're not going to find that in your left hemisphere. You're going to find that in the present moment experience. And when you allow yourself to go into that big picture and shift away from the language centers and the brain chatter in the left hemisphere, part of that is shifting away from the part of your left hemisphere that says, I am. I am an, an individual. This is my name. This is all the data of my life. I am important. And as it really shift away from that, and it's really not about me anymore, it's about the experience of being in the present moment, it's, it's a relief, actually, of the circuitry that is our stress circuitry in our brain. So you come to the present moment. You have a, a reflective, contemplative experience in the, the here and now. You've shifted yourself out of the things you were worried about. And then they haven't gone anywhere. They're still right there in your left brain. You can go hook back into them anytime you want. Do we have problems going into our right brain as a society? Do you see that? Well, I think some of us do. I think that we are, are definitely a, a left brain dominant society. We reward ourselves for uh, how productive we are, how smart we are, how much we get done, uh, how, how many hours we work. Um, you know, we, we reward ourselves for, for left brain uh, activities. And, and I think as long as, as our society is breeding uh, in our school systems the left brain, then that's what we're developing. The thing about the brain is, is it's very simple. The circuits, the cells that are exercised are the cells that are going to thrive more with less stimulation. So the more I learn language and the more I use language, the more my brain's going to use language without me having to think about having it use language. Uh, the, you know, just like the, the more time I spend consciously choosing to memorize and remember people's names, then the part of, the, of my brain, the cells in there that, that are, perform that function get exercised, and I become better at remembering people's names. So, so yeah, I mean, the brain is a very, very cellularly, at a cellular level, predictable in, in its output uh, based on its input and how we run the machine. Are you familiar with, um, I think it's Daniel Coyle's book, The Talent Code? 
No, I'm not. He he talks about deep practice. And when I was reading your book about just your recovery and, and how, this, how you broke them down really into little little steps and you just kept practicing over and over to get it, whether it was remembering what minestrone soup was and, go with, as you say, going through your file bank. And and one of the things that he talks about is that deep, you've got to do deep practice. And it's 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 being present practice is what it is. Right. You know, and that sound, when I was reading your book, that's what I was going, oh, okay, it's, it's because I understand the deep practice part and trying to understand you going through your journey and being present and, and focusing on what you can do. That was another big point that you made in your book. You focused on what you could do instead of the loss of what you had lost. Oh, absolutely. And, and carry that with an attitude of total gratitude and celebration of, of what I have instead of bemoaning what I couldn't do or didn't have. This is Karen Modokaitis of How She Really Does It, and I am talking with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, author of My Stroke of Insight. And Dr. Taylor, um, the other thing that you talked about was getting out of your way. Can you explain that concept to our listeners? Well, if, if, I'm, if, I, if I look at something and I say, oh, I can't do that, um, I'm less than I used to be because I fell off the Harvard ladder and, oh, my God, you know, my career's gone and my mind's gone and my science is gone and, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, look at me, I, I, you know, I'm pathetic. And that's an option. And that was always an option because all of those things were true and I could have had that negative judgment on myself because, you know, if anybody had the right to be miserable, I, I had pretty good reasons. And, and yet, what did that get me? That got me a paralysis in my own willingness to get better because I was so pathetic. And it was like, ooh, you know, why would I do that to myself? Why would I, why would I let my own negative critical judgment of my left hemisphere, which is really nothing but a tiny little group of cells about the size of a peanut, why would I let that peanut gallery dictate to me the value or worth of me as a human being when I'm the life force power of the universe radiated by this, this, this incredible vehicle of, of, of 50 trillion beautiful molecular geniuses. And so my right hemisphere uh, perspective of me as this incredible life force power, regardless of whether or not I had a left brain that was capable of climbing a Harvard ladder, was real clear that I'm a miracle. I'm a miracle just because I exist. And I can either focus on the fact that I'm a miracle and that I have the potential to heal and get out of my own way emotionally and not listen to that critical voice or not. And that was a choice. It was always a choice. And I think that that's a, a choice that we all make every day. And that, that ongoing peanut gallery negative brain chatter is so good at trying to keep me in my comfort zone. Oh, don't try that. You might fail or you will fail or we don't know what we're doing. It's not going to feel safe. I, I, I can't do that. I mean, all of that stuff is designed to keep you inside of your comfort zone. And if you stay inside of your comfort zone all the time, you're not going to grow. So you have to make a choice. So pre-stroke, what were you like? I was, uh, I was very left-brained. I was, um, I was uh, very career-based. I was climbing the Harvard ladder. I was winning all the awards. Uh, that they were offering. Uh, my research was, was absolutely gorgeous. 
relevant information. I was a go, 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 uh, gung-ho advocate for the mentally ill for NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, at a national level. Um, I, was, I was totally high-achieving, high-successful, uh, highly driven uh, person. I was very, very science-based. Uh, I loved science. Uh, but at the same time, I was very artistic. And when I first went to Harvard, uh, in the Department of Psychiatry, when I went to my, my job with Dr. Francine Bennis, I said to her, um, I'm an artist in my heart, but I have chosen science to earn a living. So give me jobs that I can work with artistically and make aesthetically pleasing. And she did. And we came up with absolutely beautiful, beautiful projects. And I was really good with my hands. I'm very kinesthetic. So before I became scholastic, I didn't become an academic until uh, I was a sophomore in college. And up to that point, I just wanted to be a race car driver, so I was very <laughs> right-brained. <laughs> so um, so I, was, I was very musical, very artistic, very creative, very kinesthetic, very athletic, and then I fell in love with anatomy. And once I fell in love with anatomy, then I just became uh, an academic. And uh, everybody in my family was absolutely thrilled. Oh, my God, finally, she's going to use her mind. And then, <laughs> and then I go on, and I get my doctorate, and I get to Harvard, and I'm, I'm producing, and I'm climbing, and I'm just doing beautiful things. And then I lose my left hemisphere. And I was one of the lucky ones because I wasn't just a left hemisphere before uh -huh. the stroke. If I had been a little brainy child... If I had been as brainy as a child as I was as an adult, and that's all I had developed, I wouldn't have had a strong, healthy right hemisphere to fall back on. And there's no question in my mind that part of the reason why I recovered so well was I just lost half my mind, and the other mind had already been well-developed. If it hadn't been well-developed, I wouldn't have had that to fall back on, and I perhaps would not have had the skills or determination or motivation or know-how to figure out what did I need to do in order to get out of my own way in order to be able to recover the, the skills of the left hemisphere. I think you just, I had chills. I think that was great information you gave to parents because, you know, everybody's worried, is my kid going to get into college? Are they going to go to the best schools? You right. know, we need to get the good grades. And yes, let's get rid of sports and let's get rid of arts because we don't, and music because we don't have time because we exactly. need them to get good grades. And you just gave them really good evidence about why it's oh, good to have both sides. You absolutely have to develop both sides. The goal of any parent should be, in my opinion, to develop a child who has a very well-developed right hemisphere as well as left hemisphere. You want to bring up balanced brain children. If you bring up a child who is extremely right-brained, they're going to be very different in the, in the real world. If you have a child who's extremely left-brained, they're not going to probably find a whole lot of joy in their lives because joy is in the other hemisphere. And really, you want to bring up well-balanced children. So how do you do that? You do that by specifically providing them opportunity for the development of both of those hemispheres. And my biggest argument, and I, and I tell teachers this all the time, if you're in the school system and you are fighting to keep the, the arts inside, the arts, the music, the physical education in the, in the program, my first argument is four times more strokes in, in the United States happen in the left hemisphere. And, the, and, and stroke is the number one disabler in our society, which means billions of dollars 
go to take care of these people who have gone on disability. And they're going to stay on disability longer if they don't have the skills in the right hemisphere to help themselves recover. So from, from you know, if you're just going to look at a dollar issue here mm -hmm. down the road in society, uh, absolutely we need to, to keep teaching the right hemisphere skills. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It. Our d guest today is Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, who's a brain scientist. So, Dr. Taylor, when you, prior to your stroke, did you think that you were this fabulous person? Um, I knew that I was an extremely productive, efficient, um, worthwhile human being. I don't think I'd have described myself as a fabulous person. Were you loving to yourself? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I've always been loving to myself. I've always been, um, I, you know, nothing fascinates me more than me. Uh -huh. I mean, I'm my, my own example. I fell in love with the brain and the anatomy. Anatomy I loved because I could study it, you know, sitting at the, at the bus stop because I, you know, there's my malleolus. There's my, my, my chromion process. You know, I, I had my anatomy right there. I always had the model of what fascinated me the most right there with me. Um, so so as, a, as a life, as a, an awe of life and a celebration of what we are and an incredible awe of this incredible brain and really amazed that any two of us can communicate at all because they're so complicated, it's amazing that yours is enough like mine that we actually can communicate. You know, I, yeah, I, I've always thought that we were fascinating. <laughs> and then one thing I was shocked about, and I've talked to people as I was preparing for this, sh this show, was because um, I'd known, you know, I'd always heard about it was the eight years that it took you to rebuild your brain. and But um, the fact that you got on an airplane a couple months after your surgery and the fact that your mother, who was tremendous in your recovery, you know, after three, what, three and a half months, she moved out and said, you can, you're now capable to take care of yourself. <laughs> you know, I, and, and I was a bit stunned. And, you know, and I, it, this is also coming from a place where I have a stepson who, um, who had brain damage done when he was a little kid. And today he's down in Disneyland today. And this is his first time. He's 23, but this is his first time he's on a oh. vacation by himself. Like he oh. had to get on a plane and stuff. And it was very, and so some people were kind of shocked. And so I used your story when I was talking to my husband the other day, I said, look what her mom did. And I go, you know, he's fully capable to do this. Yeah. And yet, and he, this is a place that he's enjoyed anyways. There were some transitions that we had to, you know, kind of help walk him through, like getting yeah. off the airplane, getting on the shuttle bus, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But he was able, he was more than capable. But sometimes I feel like people don't let people yeah. be capable. And, and, I, and I was so inspired about your mother and about your journey. I mean, three and a half months, yeah. I was shocked. Well, I was a fast learner, too. I mean, you have to remember, I only lost half my mind. <laughs> the other half was okay. It just didn't function very well in the world without the detailed information of, of the world. And so, and, 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 but I have to say, my mother has always been, you know, the, 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 I'm going to encourage you to uh, spread your own wings and jump out of the nest. Mm -hmm. um, she was, was never an overprotective mother. She, she appreciates that I'm going to have to fall uh, in order to pick myself up and figure out that I, I can fall and I can pick myself up and I'm okay. So, uh, yeah, and I was just totally blessed. Uh, to have Gigi Taylor as my, my caregiver uh, round two uh, as much as I was round one. 
you know, that's that's so incredible because so often, and I think, because I work with a lot of parents too, and, you know, they have such a hard time when their children struggle. And I said, but it's okay. Oh, know? yeah. Because, I mean, th- we're, we're still there. There's still the safety net of us being there. Sure. And, and that's what gives them so much strength is that, okay, it's okay if they're disappointed. They don't have to have happiness at every, you know, especially external happiness at yeah, every corner. Yeah, exactly, because they need to know that, that this is what I do. I fall, I get up, I'm okay, mm-hmm. I try again. And, and if you're not allowed to go through that process, then you're paralyzed. And the last thing any parent wants to do to their child is paralyze them in, in, in their adventure. You want them to adventure into the world, and, and it's not always sweet, and it's not always pretty, and it doesn't always feel good. But I'm telling you, a good wipeout, there's nothing like a good wipeout. Don't take that away from the child. <laughs> and don't assume that after that wipeout they're not going to, like, think that that was, like, totally cool. <laughs> so do you think your past, your journey over the, how many years has it been, 13 years has been yeah. totally cool? Oh, yeah, it's been totally cool. It, it's, you know, this, is, this, was, this was a once, I'm hoping, once-in-a-lifetime <laughs> opportunity for me to become an infant again and to regain my childhood, my innocence, my enthusiasm for life, my, my new way of being. Uh, I got to get rid of 37 years of emotional baggage. I mean, I mean, how many people would just love to have that happen? <laughs> I mean, I feel so blessed to have had this experience. And, and, you know, the bottom line is I almost died that day. I, I, I was almost a stroke victim. Instead, I was a stroke survivor. And so there was something worth celebrating right from the beginning. Oh, my gosh, I'm a survivor. I survived this. And, and there was no why me. It's just I'm not dead. Okay, that was, a, a, you know, an abrupt uh, stop of a life that was going on. And now you're going to have a new opportunity to do it a different way. And, um, and, and fortunately, I, I embraced the opportunity. And my mother embraced the opportunity to rear me again. And we, I didn't know what a mother was, much less who my mother was, because those cells were offline. And so we had to build a whole new relationship with one another. And because she didn't have, you know, 37 years of maternal power anymore. And I don't think she liked that very much. <laughs> but she learned very quickly that she was going to have to, like, clean up her act because she wasn't just going to be able to come in and be the powerful one that says, you're going to do this. It's like, I don't have to do anything for you. I don't even know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> Which have... was very freeing for me, I have to tell you. <laughs> No more expectations. No more. And it doesn't matter. Your expectations are your stuff, not mine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay with that. So you need to, like, approach me a little bit differently. And she did. She absolutely did. She did not stay in her own box. She was willing to grow as a human being as well and figure out, okay, we're, we're playing a new game. What are the rules to this game? And how do I help this child? come back into the, to the world again, and, and how do we reestablish uh, a relationship? Well, if anyone, if you, if, there's so many lessons in this, in this interview, but that, that idea of your expectation, expectations are yours, they're not oh, mine, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's huge. Your, that's, your stuff is your stuff, my stuff is my stuff, and thanks to the stroke, I was so clear on what was everybody else's stuff. And what was my stuff? And they suddenly didn't have any conjuring power over my thoughts or my behavior. It's incredible. 
This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It. And I am talking with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, author of My Stroke of Insight. So you would just, before we went to break, you had talked about thoughts and how important that they are. Can you explain more about that? Well, when you think about what is a thought from a neuroanatomical perspective, a thought is nothing more than uh, a group of cells inside of the brain communicating with one another in such a way that they're manifesting a thought. And there are different kinds of thinking. There's thinking in pictures, of course. There's thinking kinesthetically. Your body has a, a consciousness, as well as thoughts that are abstract ideas. And the different thoughts are going to be promoted by different circuitry inside of the brain. And if you have some kind of a problem in the brain, some type of, of blood clot or some type of a lesion where the cells are no longer functioning normally, then you actually don't have that thought, that capacity to think anymore. It's kind of like uh, if all of a sudden you're, you, you have a problem with your eyes and you're blind, you're still conscious, you're still thinking, you're still having information processing, but you're doing it differently now because some of the cells are no longer functioning. And so the same thing is true for thoughts. So when you think about thoughts as cells, communicating with cells, then it gets gets to, to understanding that, that these are running in circuits. And if they're running in circuits, then I have the capacity to decide whether or not I want to run that circuit. And we all know that the more time we spend memorizing people's names, then, of course, the better we are at running that circuitry and remembering people's names. Uh, the same thing is true for, for our thoughts as well as the circuitry that we run for our emotions. When you experience your emotion of anger, for example, you're just running a circuit, and you're having a physiological response in, as a result of the circuitry that you're running. So when you consider that you are cells communicating, resulting in thinking circuitry or emotional circuitry or physiological circuitry, then, then we realize, oh my gosh, maybe I have more say about which circuits I want to run and when I want to run them or not. One of our listeners had sent a message asking the question, how do you lower the intensity or do away with the negative loop in some neuro circuits? Well, if they're asking specifically negative loops of, of negative thought, yes. then I think that, that you make the decision, well, first of all, pay attention to it. Pay attention to the thought. Pay attention to what you're actually saying to yourself. Um, and, and pay attention how that feels inside of your body. And um, one of the best examples I, I can give is, um, uh, let's say you're, you're feeling angry. And we all know what that feels like. So you're mm -hmm. feeling angry, and uh, you're really mad, and you're hollering at somebody, and, oh, you're just spitting, spitting, oh, you just feel it. You, you, your chest is tight. You're, you're, you're not getting a lot of oxygen in. You're not, uh, your, your jaw's clamped. You're furrowing your brow. You're, you're loud. You make yourself big and ugly. You're, you're mad. And then the telephone rings. And then you go to the telephone, you pick up the telephone, and then you're very pleasant. You say, hello. And then you put that down. And so now you have shifted. You have totally shifted yourself out of that circuitry. There's still some residual physiology inside of your body. You can still feel your blood boiling. But your whole affect is different. And then you get off the phone, and then you have a choice in that moment. You have a choice to either stay where you went when you got on the telephone and run that circuitry, or you can go back into the anger circuitry and keep running that and go back to yelling. You have that choice of a, a, a emotional and emotional circuitry 
uh, from the time you think a thought till you till that stimulates an emotional circuit till the time that dumps a physiological uh, something into your blood, depending on the circuitry, until that f totally flushes out of your body from the time you think the thought till the time it's totally out of your bloodstream is less than 90 seconds. It's just a very quick circuit. But after that 90 seconds, you have the choice of, am I going to go back and rethink the thoughts that made me mad, go back to being mad, or am I going to go back to the present moment, where I'm not really mad in the present moment. I was triggered back in the past. Do I still want to be pre be, be bring that hostility and anger into my present moment or not? And we make these decisions automatically all the time. And you can certainly then train yourself to recognize that you're, you're running these automatic loops and that you don't have to, and that you have an alternative. So it's about making the choice and realizing just because you may be mad, that is a choice to continue to be mad. Exactly. And, and that's the important lesson because most people just think, uh, you usually hear, oh, you made me so mad. Yeah. Well, first of all, you don't make me mad. <laughs> I mean, this is very important because, because so many of us, you know, project that. Mm -hmm. uh, you do this, this makes me very mad, and you make me mad. Well, you... You don't really make me mad. I have mad circuitry inside of my brain. You're just triggering it. And you're triggering it because what you're doing is comparable to whatever it was that, that created that circuit in my brain in the first place. So if I'm trigger happy, if I get mad a lot, it just means that my triggers are sitting out there waiting for anybody to jump on them. And then you make me mad. Well, you, don't, you can't make me mad. Only I can make me mad. Only I can choose whether or not I'm going to run my anger circuitry. You don't have anything to do with that. I can give you that power, but you can't really do that to me. Well, and when somebody may say, oh, well, you did this and that made me mad, well, that's because of based on my expectations of what I think you should be doing. Exactly. So, it, again, it goes back to my business, my expectations exactly. of what you should be doing. That's what's making me mad because you aren't, you can't make me mad. Exactly. That's an important concept for people to, to learn yeah. and to practice. Well, and the whole expectation thing. I mean, if you have an expect, expectation, more than likely you're going to be disappointed. You know, one of my favorite things is when, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't say that, but when people come up to me and they say, oh, I'm so disappointed, and, it, and it's like, you know, I'm sorry that you've chosen to feel that way because that's your stuff. You know, and it's like that's supposed to have an influence on me or on my behavior because what I do isn't the way that you want it to be. Um, so, so really I think it's a matter of, of taking responsibility, owning your own stuff. Take responsibility for, for how, how you respond. I just find responsibility is how I choose to respond. Respond, the ability to choose how I respond to stimulation and things that are happening to me. You can't make me mad. You can try and try and try, and, and if I stick my trigger out there and I allow that to happen, then I'll get mad. But otherwise, I'm just going to look at you like, you're over there trying to make me mad. And I'm sorry, my, my circuit's not available for you. And how did you go about leaving your 37 years of baggage behind? Well, it disappeared. I mean, it was gone because my memory of my life was gone. And language was gone. And when language was gone, I, the part of my brain that says, I am an individual, I am Jill Bolte-Taylor, this is my history, these are the people who have influenced me, these are the people I've been mad at for 
for, for whatever reasons, this is all the stuff, all the ways I've been, been wounded or hurt or victimized or whatever, however you want to phrase any of that, it was, it was disappeared. It was gone. So it didn't exist for me anymore. And it was really nice. And so our listeners have emailed in, are there skills that you have lost that you do not have anymore? Um, no, no, not, not that I'm aware of. So there's nothing you feel like you're missing? No, the only thing that I think is missing is uh, I'm not as high risk taker as I used to be. But I wouldn't call that a skill. Uh-huh. I'd call that a, um, a value judgment. Uh-huh. But no, I, I have all I have all kinesthetic skills. I have all cognitive skills. Uh, I have much more emotional understanding uh, and skills than I ever had. And spiritually, I'm I'm a completely different person. So one of the listeners did ask, "Do you think that everyone should experience with this?" Do I think everyone should experience bliss? Is that no this that which you kind of what you've gone through, but maybe not necessarily in a stroke. Oh yeah, I think I oh absolutely. I think that that the more you allow yourself to to uh, explore um, your own right hemisphere and your own left hemisphere, and the better you get at being able to choose which one of those you're going to project into the world in any situation, then the more aware you are of who and how you are in the world, and the more choices you have in really creating the life that you want created. So I think if if the objective were to have a more peaceful, resilient, flexible way of being in the world, uh, which would be strong and healthy in lots of different ways, absolutely, I think that that, um, I I certainly don't wish a stroke upon anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And and to me, I think that that's the beauty of this story is that um, here you had a brain scientist who had really the privilege uh, of going through this process and was fortunate enough to be able to recover enough of my mind to be able to communicate the message in language that people can understand and people um, are, are not afraid of. Um, so so I, I do think that, that finding your own mindfulness and your own opening to what you are as a living being is uh, a plus for anybody. Another listener had a question about how were you able to recall your experience? Of well, the- I, de- I describe it like this. Imagine, well, I, de- I only lost half my mind, first of all. You have to remember. <laughs> all I lost was language. All I lost was language. I didn't lose the experience of the present moment. And the thing about the present moment is moments are big. So, for example, in a moment, you could teach me how to do something. You could teach me how to put my shoes on. And in another moment, you could teach me how to put my socks on. And then you could put my shoes and my socks out in front of me, and you could say, put them on, and I could put them on. But I would not know that I'd have to put my socks on before I put my shoes on because I wouldn't have any linearity of thought to my moment. So I describe it as imagine um, that all you speak is English, and you wake up one morning, and you have been transported to the center of China. And there are all these people around, and they're all speaking Chinese. And you're picking up all this information about facial expression and body language and your own self and your own well-being, but you don't understand a word anybody's saying. 
you're still very conscious and you're still you're still observing the experience and 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 processing that so that's the right hemisphere experience so that's how i remembered it okay what now you talk a lot about energy can you explain to our audience why energy is so important well, when I shifted away from the left hemisphere, the left hemisphere, if you look out into your world and you're looking at details, you're looking at boundaries and barriers and lines and things that discriminate the different things that are on a wall in front of you or you're looking outside and you're looking at the, the, the different leaves and everything is separate and all these different parts, and that's the focus. But the right hemisphere, when the right hemisphere looks out into the world, uh, imagine what it's like when you go to the beach and, and you're, the sun is setting and, and, the, it, and it's radiating all this magnificent energy and there's a breeze coming on your face and, and there's the crashing of the, the waves and, and you just, you really feel like, oh my gosh, there's something so much greater than I am. When you're in that state of being, when you shift away from the detail to the big picture, that's the consciousness of the right hemisphere, and it's all about the energy. Uh, the, the atoms and molecules are no longer defined and boundaried, separate from one another. Instead, everything is blended as everything, and you are a part of that energy sphere. So, so energy is very important because we are energy-transmitting beings. Information coming in through our eyes are atoms and molecules in vibration, going through this incredible cascade of beautiful cells at the back of the eye and then the back of the brain in order for you to be able to see the world in front of you. It's just atoms and molecules in vibration. The same thing is true for sound. It, sound is, is atoms and molecules bombarding one another, colliding with one another, and then beating on the tympanic membrane, which then gets transduced into a liquid form, and ultimately it's going to stimulate little hair molecules, little hair follicles inside of there that are going to stimulate the nerves going into your brain. I mean, it's, it's an incredible energy processing machine. So that's why energy is so important. It's because everything is energy, and we're designed to perceive some of it, cascade, lay, process, and make some sense and organize it in a certain way, and then have some kind of an output. And when you were in the hospital after your stroke, you talked about how there are some people, they were like the energy suckers, and then there were others that would give energy or TV-sucking energy. Yeah. And was that something you were aware of pre-stroke? No, I wasn't really tuned in like that. And that was really, that was what I read, tell me where I'm wrong, that that was really instrumental understanding the energy of who was sucking energy, who was um, giving energy, and how to balance that in your recovery. Well, yeah, I, I learned real quickly that all I was was energy, and I didn't have much of it left. And I wasn't processing it and organizing it and categorizing it the way that I had in the past. My, my sensory systems made no sense to me. So um, I was detached from being able to process normal information in a normal way. And when people came in, it was real clear. I call them uh, energy vampires uh, <laughs> who would come and, and really were taking energy drawings. Uh, they wanted something from me, but they weren't willing to give me anything in return. And I needed, I needed my, my people, uh, whether it's nurses and doctors or, or family or colleagues, I needed them to come in and not be demanding of me, but to bring me love, to bring me energy, to bring me support, to look me in the eye, to be compassionate with me, to be respectful of me, 
um, and and I needed them to help fuel me and refill me uh, so that I, I could have some type of connection and interaction because it took so much effort for me to try, just try to make a connection. I'm wrapping up our discussion with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, author of My Stroke of Insight. You're listening to Kren Moticitis on how she really does it. And so now with your knowledge and experience with energy, do you use that to help guide you in your life? Absolutely, 100%. Uh, every decision I make, uh, whether it's, um, uh, I can't say every decision. Some are pretty much on automatic, like what am I going to have for breakfast? Um, is pretty much already set on automatic. But whenever I'm, I'm involved in any type of uh, business deal or negotiation or decision-making process, uh, I always go back to how does this feel inside of my body and does this feel like, like is this something that I want to increase in the world? So if I'm doing a deal with, with a group of people and it ends up looking like a very left-brain deal that, that doesn't feel fair, it doesn't feel sympathetic and compassionate, it doesn't feel like a partnership, then I won't, I won't make the deal simply because that's not what I want to promote more of in my life. I want to promote more of compassion and, and partnering and, and camaraderie and, and a positive uh, experience for everybody. So, so that is how I make my decisions. It's, it's really I listen to my intuition of my right mind now. Dr. Taylor, who would have thought that having a stroke would have been the way for you to go about teaching people about choices in their lives and having the lives that they want? I mean, it's not a book about a stroke, is it? No. it's Well, that's called, why it's really called My Stroke of Insight. It's about a stroke. I take you on that journey. I take you through the recovery. But I teach you the anatomy of the brain during the process, too, of your own mind, so that then when I really talk about what's important, which is the stroke of insight. What did I learn? What did I learn as a brain scientist having had this incredible journey in my own mind and in the process of rebuilding it? And so um, it's, it's really been uh, a very well-received, uh, beautiful experience for me to go through this process. And can you explain why compassion is so important? Well, compassion happens when, when I blend you as my equal, when when I, when I treat you compassionately, I treat you as though you are my equal, and, and we are all equals. Uh, some of us have, have more book smarts. Some of us have more intuition. Some of us have more uh, physical agility. Some, you know, we're all different. We're all differently abled, but we're all really equal. And when we treat one another with that level of equality, then we're teammates trying to help make the world a better place together as opposed to competing and, and antagonistically um, uh, not being supportive of one another. Now, and cause my husband and I had we, this conversation last night because he made a comment to me, but he made it with compassion. And it was interesting because I was much more willing to accept what he had to say right. instead of like an attack. Right. And he and his comment was, and so we wound up talking about your book and about compassion. And, and his comment was, well, I always make it from compassion. And I was like, I wonder if it was when... If I'm not in a compassionate state, can I not see the world as being compassionate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I, I think that if if I'm in a space that is compassion, then even whatever your response to me is, I have a different interpretation of that than if I'm in my left brain, where I'm really feeling much more uh, competitive. 
and and I think that that these are you know this is part of the the way we interact with one another as just normal human beings on a moment by moment basis, which is one reason why before I I will do an interview or before I will take a trip or before I pick up a phone and make a serious phone call, I'll draw an angel. I, I work with angel cards. They're just these positive, aff affirmative, single words on, on cards. And I will draw a card and I will focus on that. And I might draw compassion. Uh, I might draw love or peace or play or, or something that allows me to shift into that, that much more right hemisphere compassionate way of being so that when I call somebody, I'm actually reaching out with my compassion, and hopefully that's what they will reflect back to me. And it usually works great. So the energy that we put out there comes, can come back to us. So if you come from a state of compassion and loving, that's t probably what's more going to come back to your way. Yeah, and if I all of a sudden come in and I'm angry and I'm hostile and I'm going to start blaming you for stuff, nah, 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 you're probably going to get pretty gnarly right back. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty predictable. And, you know, again, it goes back to how much power that we really have over our lives. Yeah. Instead of, you know, complaining about, oh, this happened and that happened and this person was this way, just if we can give people our love, right. they'll probably bring their energy levels down instead of meeting them at their high anxiety stress exactly and you can feel it you can feel it as soon as somebody walks in the room you can feel it you can see it they start talking real fast there's you know this 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 ugh, and it's like mm, having a hard day and you can just bless them and you know see their energy dissipating and just keep your cool keep your calm you stay centered and let them bounce all over the place and eventually they'll they'll get bounced out and they'll see that you're not going to feed that and so they're either going to leave because you're not satisfying that need anymore or they're going to calm down and then you're going to have a, the kind of relationship that you want. The last thing before we get off the air, I've been traveling a lot in the last couple of weeks and going to conferences and stuff. And, and I noticed that I was just exhausted. Yeah. And so over the weekends, you know, or just emails that would get sent, all of a sudden the way I was interpreting them were just really offbeat because I was just so right. tired. And I'm just starting to learn that, you know, I'm 37 now, and it's like I need to really take care of myself yeah. so I can help take care of other people because I'm not functioning at my best. And you really mentioned about how important sleep is. Oh, sleep is huge. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing about the, that little peanut gallery, that little negative brain chatter stuff that goes on, it, it, it increases as we become vulnerable. And we become vulnerable when we're tired or when we're emotionally suffering uh, with grieving or sadness or, or anger. Uh, and and it, it just kind of uh, um, hooks into itself and, and becomes more aggravated. And then I'm more aggravated. And so then I'm more aggravating. And then I'm like a little... It's like, ooh, you know what that feels like inside of your body. Go take a nap. <laughs> You know, it's just like, it's treat your brain just like it's little children. Oh, I need a nap. You know, just because you would do that to a five-year-old. If a five-year-old came in and they were like that, what would you do to them? You'd lay them down for a nap. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Give yourself the same gift. Well, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much. It was a pleasure and an honor to talk with you. Thank you. I really appreciate being invited. Well, thank you. We've had Dr. Joe Bolte-Taylor, author of My Stroke of Insight. This is Karen Modakaitis. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It on KDRT LP 95.7 FM.